You're listening to the teaching of Doxa Church. Doxa is located in Spartanburg, South Carolina, and our mission is to glorify God through the fulfillment of the Great Commission. morning, we're going to finish our love story between Ruth and Boaz. We're going to tie a big bow on this happily ever after. Now, the thing about a good love story is that we all like the idea of love. Um, We all want love. But notice I didn't say we all love love. Uh, For some of us, and uh, right now, and really Everyone from time to time, I would say, we can get scared of love. It can be a scary thought. Why is that? It's because love can hurt. It really can. It can be heartbreaking to open yourself up and and then feel betrayed is one of the hardest things that you can go through in life. So that messes with people's heads. Um, And if you don't watch it, It can skew your view of love. And if that wasn't tough enough already, then you have Hollywood, sprinkle a little Disney Disney dust in there, and, and you can get these ideas of love that have a shell of love, but it's missing some of the components, right? It's missing the sacrifice, the commitment. And then you get a half version of love. That also gives people a bad taste in their mouth. Because if you take the sacrifice, devotion, the commitment out of love, you leave it hollow and cheap. So much so that I dare say, even some of us here today can feel callous and indifferent to a good love story. And when I say Ruth and Boaz, happily ever after, part of you is like, oh no, here we go again. I, I don't need another one of these. Well, the good news is this story, this love story, is so much more pride and prejudice and nothing like Twilight, okay? (laughs) We're talking about a true love story found in God's word, Ruth chapter four, and that's where I I wanna invite you to open up today, Ruth chapter four. If you've been with us the last three weeks, you'll know exactly where we're at with all of this. And Ruth and Naomi right now are in a desperate situation. They have no money. And the land that Naomi's old husband, Elimelech, used to own is up for a short sale. So we've already covered the first three chapters. Chapter one, called it Unfaithful People, Faithful God. There's death, there's famine, there's horrible mistakes, bad decisions being made all around. But in the midst of that, the narrator is showing us that God is up to something. He's brewing something. He's at work, even when it doesn't feel like it or seem like it to the naked eye. God's hand is at work. And in chapter two, beauty in the Boaz. There's love at first sight. Sparks are starting to fly. There's something in the water. We have hope. It was exciting, fun, and flirty. Then in chapter three, midnight at the threshing floor. It was everything it sounds like, all right? Ruth revealed herself to Boaz in the middle of the night, and she proposed that he propose, okay? In a slightly uncomfortable 
um, not how you would normally draw it up sort of way. She let him know that if you want me, I am yours. You can have me. And she asked Boaz to be her redeemer. So today, we're going to see how this all comes together. And the main theme of this chapter is the main theme of the entire book. The providence of God is going to be on full display. He is good and he is sovereign. And we're going to see this morning that this is the same thing that we have seen every single one of these chapters. God's providence. There it is, a definition for you. It's a definition I heard that we've been using every week. God's endless attention and meticulous care to every tiny detail in your life to make you a masterpiece showcasing his glory. And as we take a closer look at Ruth's kinsman redeemer, Boaz, by the end of the message today, you are going to see a very clear picture of our redeemer, Jesus Christ. That's where we're going with this. So follow along with me as I read Ruth chapter 4, verses 1 through 6 to start. And as we've done throughout this story, we're going to make some observations as we go and let the story take us where where it needs to take us. Verse one of chapter four. Now Boaz had gone up to the gate and sat down there and behold, the redeemer of whom Boaz had spoken came by. So Boaz said, turn aside, friend, sit down here. And he turned aside and sat down. And he took 10 men of the elders of the city and said to the redeemer, Naomi, who has come back from the country of Moab is selling the parcel of land that belonged to our relative Elimelech. So I thought I would tell you of it and say, buy it in the presence of those sitting here and in the presence of the elders of my people, if you will redeem it. Redeem it. But if you will not, tell me that I may know, for there is no one besides you to redeem it, and I come after you. And he said, I will redeem it. Then Boaz said, the day you buy the field from the hand of Naomi, You also acquire Ruth, the Moabite widow of the dead, in order to perpetrate the name of the dead in his inheritance. Then the Redeemer said, I cannot redeem it for myself, lest I impair my own inheritance. Take my right of redemption yourself, for I cannot redeem it. A lot going on in those verses, but what I want us to see is, first and foremost, our first point today is, Boaz willingly purchased Ruth's freedom from his own personal riches. That's just the overarching, this is what is happening. Here's the heading of what just happened. Now, we have a lot, of get, lot to get into. Um, and before we get into all the spiritual parallels, I think it's important to see the real-life practical applications that are revealed to us here. First of all, in verse 1, this is very subtle, but he is sitting down at the city gate. And, and when you think of city gate, I don't want you to think of some like dirty, grungy, you got all these like beggars out there, there's sweat and like there's these slow camels walking through the gate. Like don't think of like that picture of a city gate. Think of a well-fortified, nice city gate that has an outer gate and an inner gate, okay? So these, these cities at this time had walls for protection and you had like, if you came in the first gate, you had, to, you had to know the right person and say the right thing to get into the next gate. And in between these 
these two gates, you would have corridors, okay? So it wasn't just some like wide open place you just like wander through. There, it was pretty nice, and the city gate was basically just like city hall, all right? This is where business deals were done. This is where people would negotiate. And for you to have a seat at the city gate means that you're somebody, all right? So, so not just anybody can sit down at the city gate. You can be invited to come to the city gate, but Boaz right here uh, has land, he has money, he has wealth. He is someone who has a seat at that table. He's a leading man of the city, a wealthy businessman who's in the know. Now the second part of this first verse is actually pretty humorous in the original. Just like in chapter two, if you remember, where Ruth just so happened onto the field of Boaz, right? The most eligible bachelor in all the land. And, it's, and the author's giving us a wink, wink, like God's up to something here. Um, well, the, the, in the original language in chapter, chapter four here, again, we have, and behold, the redeemer of who Boaz had spoken of in chapter three, this guy that he needed to talk to. Oh, he just so happened to walk in first thing, first thing Monday morning, here he is. Come on, friend, have a seat. We need to talk business. God's providence is already on display. Now, according to the law, you needed to have two or three witnesses to make a deal legal and official. And so how many does, how many does Boaz gather here? Two or three, four, maybe? Ten. Ten, okay. Boaz wants to do something, right? You can, can, you, can you get a hint on how, how much Boaz wants Ruth? He is, he is gonna make this happen but notice how close he plays this to the vest. All right, he says to you know, his relative who was closer in relation to Elimelech and Naomi, so technically this guy had the right of first refusal, and, and Boaz, if he wants Ruth, has to, go, has to go through this guy first. And so he lays out this, this plan. You know, he, he lays out the presentation, I should say. Naomi is here from Moab. This is the land up for sale. Will you redeem it? You have first dibs on this, and I come after you. And the guy says, what does he say there in like verse five? <coughs> yes, I will redeem it. Okay, that's a gut punch. We were hoping you would say no <laughs> to that. Uh, but he wants the land. And he's ready to take a good deal when he sees one. He doesn't really want Ruth. He doesn't really know anything about Ruth. He, but as you read these verses, it's pretty clear he doesn't want complications. He doesn't want anything to hinder his investment and his heritage down the road. So if you look again closely at verses 5 and 6 at, at Boaz, the shrewd businessman who's in boss mode here, he's playing chess at the checkerboard, okay? Because now Boaz picks up, you know, look at his description of Ruth. You also acquire Ruth the Moabite. And I'll, I'll let you know right here and now, this is the last time Ruth is ever called the Moabite in all of Scripture, all right? But he made sure to sprinkle that part in. Ruth the Moabite. You know those people that hate us, the Jews? Those people who are, are you know, incestuous relationships started those people and they worship demon gods? Those Moabites? Yeah, you think there's a little baggage there? All right? So in, you're not just getting a really good deal on a short sale on land, buddy. 
you're actually going to have Elimelech's name be perpetrated and continue. Um, you're going to keep their family line alive. Now, I know this whole like buying land and then purchasing this to marry Ruth, like I want to take a quick pause right here and say I realize that this may not sound super appealing to the modern ear. We're, we're in 2022, right? Some women don't even like taking the same last name as the man that they're going to marry, let, let alone like looking at this from this perspective. So there's a lot of people who talk about the ancient concept of marriage and like a woman being man's property. And if that's something you're thinking about right now, I just want to pause and say marriage is ordained by God. And contrary to what secular historians, what activists shout from the rooftops today, God's intention was never for a woman to be man's property. That's not how God defined marriage. Just read Genesis. Men and women, they, one man, one woman, they, they cleave to one another, they leave and cleave, and they become one flesh. Man's role is to lead the home, to provide and protect to lead and love their wife like Christ loves the church. And though men and women are created differently with different strengths and weaknesses, they are to complement one another and they are equal. They are equal, equal but different. And that's always been God's plan and purpose in marriage. And even though mankind has abused that and created, um, and created problems throughout the ages, we, we've gotten our hands in there and, and, uh, and twisted it to a certain degree, that doesn't change the truth that God created men and women different, different but equal. Boaz isn't in this to make Ruth his property. He's in this to love and sacrifice for her. It's a beautiful thing. We've already seen from, from Hello in chapter 2 how Boaz has been overly gracious to Ruth. Now, more on that to come, but I just want to say, don't let our culture tell you what marriage is and is not, all right? If you're, if you're in the army and you're a Marine, you're not going to let somebody tell you what sacrifice for their, for their country means, right? If they've never even like lifted a finger to, to defend the country. We wouldn't let them tell us what that's supposed to be like. Just like us who know God, who, who love Jesus Christ, who've been redeemed by him, we know what real marriage is. And we can't let the world skew that version of, of true marriage. So we could spend a lot of time on that. That's all I'm going to say about that for now. But back to the story. The main point here is Boaz wants Ruth. And he plays his cards exactly right in a way that reveals this other guy's heart and intentions. And also it pushes him to back off. Brilliantly paid, played by Boaz. So... What seemed like a no-brainer is now a pass for this guy. Boaz wants not just an investment, not just another piece of land. He already has plenty of land. That guy was going for something that he could hand down for his, for his inheritance, to his, to his generations, right? He didn't want another wife, or he didn't want a wife, I should say. Boaz wanted that. Boaz wants to be a husband and a father. And he has an entirely different lens by the way he looks at this. The first guy wants land. Boaz wants Ruth. 
This is a huge difference. Now, there is a side point here that I can't help but also bring out. One more little side note for you here today is that I think for all the businessmen and the businesswomen in the room, don't let ever, anyone ever guilt you into making a good business negotiation deal. There is nothing wrong with that. There is nothing wrong with knowing your stuff, having all the facts lined out, being prepared, knowing where you want to go with this conversation, because that's what Boaz is doing through this whole thing. There's, there's nothing wrong with knowing what's valuable and negotiating the best deal possible to reveal other people's intentions and to reveal your own intentions. Should you rip anyone off? Of course not. We're not saying that. Treat your business as a ministry, but don't ever feel guilty about preparing and negotiating a deal. The sovereignty of God is all over this. But that doesn't stop Boaz from, from, from just punting on the negotiation. He's an accomplished, seasoned businessman, and there is nothing wrong with that at all. Now getting back to the main point. Last, that was your last side note. Boaz has the right heart, and he has the right perspective. And that matters. This always matters when you're talking about family and you're talking about the things of God. Some people think like, oh, well, why do I really have to give myself and commit and devote time to, to, to the local church? Or, or why do I have to like even have kids? That, that's a thought that's out there. Like, well, it's hard. It's not easy. And like, I love my dogs. And, you know, like, it's, I don't, I don't, I'm not ready for that right now. I'm too busy for that. Why follow God's plan and do things the way God tells us to do it? because that's the best and that's gonna work out for you in the end. Better than anything you can come up with. There is joy from a family that is priceless that nothing else in this world can ever come close to. Money can't buy the joy that comes from raising a child and watching them develop and seeing their sense of humor come out and, the, and then even yourself growing from their hobbies and their interests. So Boaz doesn't see all of this extra add-on as an expense. He sees it as an honor, and that's what he desires. The first guy saw Ruth as a drawback. He saw Ruth as a problem. Boaz saw Ruth as the prize. That's what he wanted. He sees her as a gift. He's looking at love and legacy, not just profit and loss. And here's the ironic thing about the guy who cares so much of about imparting his own inheritance, the guy who's so worried about his family name not being tarnished by some dirty Moabite woman. You know this guy here in this text? What's his name? What's his name in this? What's this guy's name? Oh, that's right. The Bible doesn't even give us his name, <laughs> right? This is a story where everyone's name is in this story and everybody's name has a meaning. This is the one person in the whole story it's, it's literally awkward in the original Hebrew when you go back to read it. It's literally Mr. So-and-so. Like they, they go out of their way not to say his name. It's awkward the way it's written because this is the guy who just wanted to leave his good name behind and pass it on to his kids. But he was so concerned about what was in it for him and how it would affect me that he didn't think about sacrifice 
He didn't think about pouring out for someone else, doing the hard thing to redeem a woman that sounds like she has some baggage. I think there's something there with that. It's the people who are generous and sacrificial like Boaz. Those are the people who leave a lasting, memorable legacy. Always remember that. So that's your first part, first movement of chapter four. Here's the second part of this chapter. Number two, Boaz satisfied the legal demands of the law. I know some of us, this sounds boring already. As soon as you say legal and you say law, you're like, oh no, oh no, don't, don't, make me, don't make me sign a whole bunch of papers, David. Well, look, look at what God's word says here in verses seven through 12, because this is gonna get really good. Verse seven, now this was the custom in former times in Israel concerning redeeming and exchanging to confirm a transaction. The one drew off his sandal and gave it to the other, and this was the manner of attesting in Israel. So when the redeemer said to Boaz, buy it for yourself, he drew off his sandal. And then Boaz said to the elders and all the people, you are witnesses this day that I have bought from the hand of Naomi all that belonged to Elimelech and all that belonged to Chilion and to Malon. Also Ruth, the Moabite, the widow of Malon, I have bought to be my wife to perpetrate the name of the dead in his inheritance that the name of the dead may not be cut off from among his brothers and from the gate of his native place. You are witnesses this day. Then all the people who were at the gate and the elders said, we are witnesses. May the Lord make the woman who is coming into your house like Rachel and Leah, who together built up the house of Israel. May you act worthily built up. May you act worthily in Ephrathath and be renowned in Bethlehem. And may your house be like the house of Perez, whom Tamar bore to Judah because of the offspring that the Lord will give you by this young woman. This is awesome. Now, let's, let's look at this historical, grammatical, legal piece of this first because it's easy to miss, but it's in here for a reason. Back in this time, if you wanted to buy a piece of land from someone, you would go out there and you would walk the land, you would figure out the boundaries, and then the person who was selling you the land would take off their sandal and give you one of their sandals. It's like a gesture of, I'm no, I'm no longer just gonna come out here and hang out as I please. Like, I'm not gonna set foot on this land anymore. It's your land, so here's my sandal. It was basically like your official seal that you would stamp on a legal document. It's like, all right, the deal is done. And you take that sandal and that's like, that's like evidence, the hard evidence that I bought that land. I got the guy's sandal. Hopefully, oh, I don't know. We'll, we'll just stop right there. You know, that can get gross and maybe not great, but whatever. Uh, the second Boaz has the sandal handed to him, he goes off and he starts explaining his true intentions, what he's doing. He is ready to give himself to Ruth. He doesn't see Ruth as a problem. He sees her as the prize. He even honors her dead husband as he waxes eloquent on the historical precedent that he's now executing. He names the dead. The, the deal is registered with no hesitation. And I have to say here again on a practical level, don't miss what God is making evident. 
Legacy matters. Legal demands of the law matter. God's people sometimes fail to execute business deals with this kind of wisdom because we fail to see past the immediate and we're too hyper-focused on what we can see and touch and hold right now. You can tell Boaz had a, he was looking, he was looking back to the history. He's also looking forward to all of this entails. Mr. So-and-so thought about this from a selfish, limited perspective. He thought about it with ones and zeros. He was linear in his thinking. Boaz is nonlinear. He is zooming out of the urgency of the immediate and in the tyranny of the present. He has proceeded with prayer and he has executed a plan in accordance with the providence of God. He didn't just sit back and say, let come what may. Oh, well, he said he wants to buy it. I guess I'm going to have to just not make it happen. Oh, well. He didn't do that at all. He had a plan. He executed that plan in accordance with God's will. Now, Boaz also played by the rules, but he did everything he could within the order of the rules to execute this legally binding purchase. So if you're keeping track at home, there was planning, there was prayer, and there was purpose in motion with God's providence. Someone shared a quote with me this week, and, and as I was studying this passage, it, it really made me think about a connection here with what's going on with Boaz in this chapter four. The quote is, a decision born of emotion and disguised as conviction doesn't usually last. With Boaz, there's prayer and there's planning. And I know some people in the room are just planners. Some people are not planners, okay? And you have to work on that. But how many of you are the type of person when you're going on a trip or on vacation, you, you get every, every I dotted and T crossed and you have things packed up, ready to go. You have reservations made. Who's like that? Who just loves half the fun? Half the fun is just planning it out, right? getting everything organized, getting things set up in, in, in good order. And then there's the people like me who are like, you know what, I'll pack, you know, three hours before we, uh, I'll, I'll pack before I go to bed. And maybe if I have to, I'll pack in the morning before I jump in the car. And, you know, we're going to go where the car leads us and we're going to figure it out as we get there and we're going to have fun, right? You have, you have people who just like to pray through it. Spiritual people? No, I'm just kidding. You, you have that, that person, and then you have the person who plans. We, we have to have both. There, there needs to be a balance, which is another one of the amazing gifts of marriage when a wife compliments a husband, and, and you come together, and your, and your strengths and your weaknesses meld together, right? But trusting in God's providence, doing your part, doing the best you can do with, with what's in front of you and what you can actually control and then leaving the rest up to God. That's what we have to do. Boaz, if you think back to chapter three, he could have gotten emotional and in love and infatuated and just eloped, right? More than anything, he wants to be with Ruth, but he didn't rush the process. The night before, they could have let their emotions get the best of them and gone a step too far. But instead of going at the speed of light, he makes sure he's doing things in the proper order. Don't rush big decisions. Boaz was into Ruth from day one of harvest season. 
but he didn't rush it. He almost waited too long, like the classic male, right? You know, you can't have drama in those love stories without somebody like dragging their feet a little bit. And then if you want to call it a, a substantial hint that Ruth gave him, gave him, and then, okay, we got to move. But one thing is for sure, he did not let his emotions run ahead. He didn't disguise that as a conviction either. Because emotional decisions that don't have planning and prayer, they don't always work out the way we think they will work out. And lastly, in verse, verses 13 through 17, we have our third section, point number three, Boaz lavished Ruth with generosity and grace. Look at verses 13 through 17 with me. So Boaz took Ruth and, he, and she became his wife. And he went into her and the Lord gave her conception and she bore a son. Then the woman said to Naomi, Blessed be the Lord who has not left you this day without a redeemer. And may his name be renowned in Israel. He shall be to you a restorer of life and a nourisher of your old age. For your daughter-in-law who loves you, who is more to you than seven sons, has given birth to him. Then Naomi took the child and laid him on her lap and became his nurse. And the women of the neighborhood gave him a name saying, a son has been born to Naomi. They named him Obed. He was the father of Jesse, the father of David. Look at this ending. Not only do they, they live happily ever after, but through this line, we get Obed and Obed had Jesse and he and Jesse was the father of King David. This is the, the messianic line of Jesus Christ, our Savior and our Redeemer. Every time Boaz was interacting with Ruth in this story, Boaz lavished her with grace. And every, every time, there was three different movements in chapter two, three different exchanges, all three of those exchanges Boaz was giving something to Ruth that, that he, didn't have, he didn't have any business doing. Just went out of his way to give her something. He does it again in chapter three when he gives her as much grain as she can possibly carry in her heels and her fancy dress in the middle of the night. Remember that part? That doesn't change in their union together. <laughs> Happened while they were dating and he carried it right into marriage. He didn't change. He continues to give her more than she deserves. And notice another nod into God's goodness and sovereignty in verse 13. The Lord gave her conception and she bore a son. We have ourselves here a honeymoon baby, okay? And, and what I find very interesting about that is Ruth was married. I think it was Chilion uh, for 10 years, right? And they never had any kids. Do you remember that? In that day, it was natural birth control only, okay? And if you were going to play that game, not many people were playing that game, but the whole point was to have a child because that was very, very important. It's different than our culture where we can wait a while, and that's a good idea maybe sometimes to wait a while. Like, no, like they were on it. And they did not have any children. Having children was expected. It was necessary 
but God never gave her a child in the first marriage. That had to be hard. Had to be. Infertility is a painful, brutal trial. And that hits very close to home at the theme of this entire book. You can't always judge what you see as an accurate interpretation of what's really going on. And you can't allow the page you're on to determine the next line that you're going to write. For anyone dealing with a trial like that, it doesn't make sense. What is God doing? Why is this happening? Remember, God's grace is in the gray. When we don't understand, his hand is over it. And he's doing something that we cannot see right now. She never had a child in her first 10 years, but God gave her a son on her first night of marriage with Boaz. I don't have all the answers. You don't have all the answers. None of us do. We never will. But God knows. God knows what he's doing right now in your life. And there is a purpose and there is a plan behind everything that is happening to you. And sometimes it takes faith to not let the present depress you. The only way out of those unknowable hardships is to put your faith and your hope in God. And look what God did for Naomi. We saw, we saw another glimmer of this back in chapter one, right? Where, where Ruth was bitter and excuse me, where Naomi was, was bitter and angry at God and God gave her a friend. He gave her Ruth. Now, in verse 16, after all she went through, she gets a grandbaby. Just look at verse 16 again. Then Naomi took the child and laid him on her lap and became his nurse. There are so many tears behind that verse that make it so sweet. Think about her whole life. It's all come to this, and God has given her this baby Obed. She did not want to let that little guy go. You can just feel the passion coming off the page 3,000 years later. What a precious gift this is. Naomi is not bitter anymore. God is good. He gave her Ruth despite all her mistakes, her failures, her questionable advice. And now he's giving her Obed. This is grace upon grace. And in this story, as I said from week one on, God is the hero. God is sovereign his mercy and his grace rains down. His providence is beautiful. It's evidence here in this happily ever after. But there's something else that is actually eternal about this timeless love story. I've been hinting at it all series long. Boaz is a redeemer. Boaz is a type and a shadow of Jesus Christ, our redeemer. For Boaz, Ruth wasn't a problem. She was the prize. He pursued her. He did everything in his power to take this poor servant girl to be his own. Ruth had nothing to offer, absolutely nothing. And Boaz gave her everything he had. Does that sound familiar? But I want to put up a slide for you to, to, to see what, what we have here in Boaz is a parallel to what we have in Christ. And I know the font is a little small. Maybe you can read that. Maybe you can't. 
But Boaz willingly purchased Ruth's freedom from his own personal riches, right? Christ purchased our freedom because of his righteousness. Boaz satisfied the legal demands of the law. Christ satisfied the legal demands of a holy God's wrath on sin. Boaz lavished Ruth with generosity and grace. Christ lavishes his bride with generosity and grace upon grace. That's what he does for his bride. There's so much truth here about the gospel of Jesus Christ that we have to just soak in and just resonate with right now. 2 Corinthians 5.22 says, For our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that we might become the righteousness of God. Acts 20.28 says, Be careful to, to pay attention to yourselves and to all the flock, in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to care for the church of God, which he obtained with the purchase of his own blood. Jesus was able to sacrifice his life to be the payment for our sins because Jesus was sinless. Jesus has this unlimited wealth of righteousness. That's who he is in his character. He never sinned. And he was the only person who could satisfy the, the just demands of a holy God because God is holy and we are not. God is sinless. And, and, and God wouldn't be just if he let sin go unpunished. There was only one person who could take that punishment, someone who never sinned. And Jesus Christ willingly went to the cross to pay the penalty of our sin. It was his robes for mine. He not only forgives us our sin, but in this great exchange, he imputed his righteousness onto our account. He's the only one who could ever do that. The wages of our sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. Jesus willingly sacrificed his life on the tree. And the whole story of Ruth points to the ultimate sacrifice of our Redeemer, Jesus Christ. Just like Boaz lavished Ruth with grace, Jesus Christ lavishes his bride, the church, with grace upon grace. In him is forgiveness and restoration and peace. In him is life and joy and unity. He will wipe away every tear from your eyes. And if you're in that place right now where Ruth was for a while, where Naomi was for a while, where it does not make sense and what is God doing and why is this happening to me, have faith that God is good and he is sovereign. And everything that he's orchestrating behind the scenes is truly for your good and for his glory. Would you stand up with me? Doesn't matter what's in your past, there is grace for that. Doesn't matter what you have or have not done, there is mercy in his eyes. None of us are worthy. We're all, we're all fallen and straying like sheep, but he is the good shepherd. And just like Boaz said to Ruth, you are a worthy woman. When Jesus restores us and makes us new, 
We're a new creation. He goes after that one lost sheep, leaves the 99, goes after the one, pulls you back into the sheepfold, puts you in the pasture where you have, you have, you have a wide open field to, to walk in freedom, enjoy the goodness, enjoy the sunshine, enjoy the water and the provision that he gives you. That's our redeemer and he wants you too. And he wants you to abide with him forever and ever. So as we just sing to Jesus Christ right now, our redeemer, maybe some of you are ready just to shout a praise to him. Maybe others, you need to, you need to talk with him right now and just pray. Give over what you're struggling. Hand over at the altar. Like this was what I had planned and it's not working out. Give it over to your Savior. I hope God, I hope God revealed something to you through this story. Because I know, I know he did for me. And I'm so thankful for a book like this that reveals the goodness and the sovereignty of God. He loves you. And, and if you're a member of the church, you are his bride. And, and we are going to be with him forever and ever. And, and, and we have so much to look forward to. Say our verse together. Romans 12, 9 through 14. Let love be genuine. Abhor what is evil. Hold fast to what is good. Love one another with brotherly affection. Outdo one another in showing honor. Do not be slothful in zeal. Be fervent in spirit. Serve the Lord. Rejoice in hope. Be patient in tribulation. Be constant in prayer. Contribute to the needs of the saints. And seek to show hospitality. You are loved.